thinking of a summer getaway? It's time to visit friends, family and the places you love with Stanoline. It's time to jump in the car and pack what you want without worrying about baggage charges. And it's time we welcome you on board where everything is just right. Or as we say in Sweden, la gom. Let us take care of the big little things that make every sailing spacious, stylish and safe. Get away to Britain or Europe from only €139 Euro one way for a car and driver. Book today at stanaline.ie. In Dublin City, in the early 20th century, a series of revolutions began. The world watched on as the oppressed attempted to become the equal. Differences were set aside for common goals of freedom. That was the cost of freedom. Had you been there, could you have done the same? Could you have given yourself for the freedom of those you would never meet 100 years later? What would it take for you to believe in this fight? It's the life of a Dublin man which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In Dublin City, in 1888, a child was born. His name was Michael Malone. From a very early age, Michael showed he was a very capable and gifted artist. He had a real flair for the creative world and conveying complex images in the visual narrative of art came easy to him. He first learned to sketch, draw and paint in the technical schools of Dublin. The schools designed to take those deemed as non-academics into trades. The school system he was in only recognised the intelligence of rote learning rather than the ability to have new original thought or to convey new ideas. Thankfully for Michael, it was in these technical schools he was afforded the opportunity to flourish with new ideas. He was given the tools and materials to play with so his creative flair could develop, as so could his abilities. Upon leaving the school system, Michael had developed his craft to the extent that he could mould pieces of wood into remarkable art and turn clay into sculptures, which captured the imagination of all those lucky enough to witness it firsthand. Unfortunately for Michael, whilst he was being noted for the great artist he was, art seldom meets the financial constraints of life and he was forced to get a job which would allow him to properly provide for himself. With the skills he had learnt in the technical schools, Michael decided to become a carpenter. He worked from sunrise to sunset across Dublin city, setting off each morning, carrying all his tools on his back, and walking from site to site, then walking home again. With him, he would bring the timber cut-offs from his day's work 
and used them to either add to his art or to light a fire which would brighten the room just enough to imitate work on his art during the night. This gave Michael a sort of rare freedom to do what he wanted to do and release his creative soul whilst also being able to live just above the line of poverty. Michael had a brother, William. William too attended the technical schools of Dublin, but unlike his brother, did not have the flair for creative, nor the desire to work all the hours of the day, making the rich richer while he struggled to keep a roof above his head, due to the horrifically low payments being dished out by the wealthy business owners to the local dubs. In Dublin city at the time, the people of Dublin were simple subjects or serfs of the crown. Working all the hours of the day for a mere threepence, three red pennies in exchange for their lives. The employers, the police and the powers that be kept the foot of the crown firmly on the neck of the Irish, who were just doing their level best to survive. They were frightened of the Irish, gaining a respect for themselves and rising. If they were to rise against the injustice, it would affect the profits of the empire, as to pay people fairly would upset their strategy of stealing from the poor to pay the rich. These were the type of world leaders who would rather see you starve first and then your children instead of paying you fairly or allowing you access to your rights. The greatest example of this I can give you is the lives of those in number 14 Henry Inner Street, Dublin City. The houses on the street were built in 1720. By 1911, more than 850 people lived on the street. 100 of those in a single house. 14 Henrietta Street. The poor of the city were poorer than poor. The city lived in power during the 1913 lockout as James Larkin rose out his arms and began the Cultural Revolution which rose the poor Irish preparing them to die on their feet rather than live on their knees. William, unable to find steady employment, took a different career route to his brother. While Michael worked on building sites and with his art William decided the best career move for himself was to accept the call of arms by the British Army and head to Europe for war. He had heard the stories of the wonderful places he would see, the culture he would experience and the strange people he would meet. He 
he had not heard of landmines, machine guns or trench warfare. He had heard even less of chemical warfare. William rose quickly through the ranks of the British Army and by May 1915 he found himself a sergeant leading the proud Dublin Fusiliers into battle. A group of proud Dublin men who saw the army as an opportunity to have a daily dinner rather than the opportunity to be killed or killed. On May 24th, 1915, William and his men lay low in their trenches, planning their next attack in enemy lines. As rats raced through the trenches under their feet, carrying with them the bits of their deceased friends they wished to feast on, William saw one of the worst sights of the terrible war. A yellow mustard coloured cloud began to move towards where they stood. scream went out. Boys, gas, masks quickly, quickly. The scramble began. Those not near their own masks at the time of the attack fought with others for theirs. It was every man for himself when these clouds would appear. When you had your own on and got to safety away from those who weren't prepared, you would sit quietly and listen while your friends gargled for life clawed at their necks for air, tried cutting bits of their throat to try and breathe, and died with faces which showed the horrific pain they were in. You then looked on as the whites of their eyes stared at you, asking where were you as they suffered. When the gas passed, the enemy moved in and opened fire from the top of the trenches at all those who remained. Of the 658 Dublin men who started that day in the hopes they would one day see home, only 22 survived. William's death rocked Michael. He understood that William had gone there as a result of the oppression of his people in Dublin and was only trying to earn a real living. He also understood the lies the Nationalists were sold, that if they fought for the Crown, they might one day achieve Irish freedom. Michael had won a series of local and national prizes for his art, and began to quickly make a name for himself amongst the world of artists in 20th century Ireland. It was in these circles he began to meet the poets and artists of the more Celtically aligned Irish artists. He met the poets Podrick Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Joseph Plunkett, James Connolly and Roger Casement. Not only were these men artists and poets, they were revolutionists. Their ability to think differently through their creativity helped them to understand that there was another way for the people of Ireland to live. 
they could live as free Irish people and not as subjects of a foreign crown imposing its self-indulgent rule on the people it had no understanding of. He had joined them in 1913, before his brother's death. But it was his death, like so many others, that fueled the fire for evolution. He began to hold a hate in his heart for those who made lives harder. He learned of the rising through his creative friends and he wanted in. When Michael began training with the rebels, they quickly discovered not only had a keen eye for art, but he was a crack shot with a rifle, rarely missing when aiming from a distance. He also showed signs of great intelligence and he would be a very capable leader. He was given the rank of Lieutenant in the Cycling Corps of Eamon de Valere's 3rd Battalion. Almost exactly a year after William's death came Easter weekend, 1916. This was the day when the Celtic soul formed a harp-shaped fist, slammed the board and cried no more. Michael was sent with De Valera's troops to the southeast of the city. While De Valera was stationed in Boland's Mill, Michael and a man called Seamus Grace, a former soldier of the Canadian Army who had returned home for the cause of liberation. With Michael's ability to shoot at long range and Seamus's training, they were given the special role of being snipers on the southeast of the city should the British come through that way. They may also be required to provide cover for those running to and from Stevens Green if needed. The first few hours of the rising were quiet for Michael and his men. Much of the fighting was taking place in the GPO and at Dublin Castle. There was a sense that the British Army who were still preoccupied with events in Europe were not that concerned with the Rising. But as the rebels began to show their might and will, the Empire, for a brief moment, flicked its eyes to the West and accepted the challenge of the battle in Dublin. As the warship Helga moved up the Liffey to begin bombing the rebel stations, Michael and Seamus were to experience a very different power of the Empire. On the Tuesday night, across the Irish Sea, in the docklands of Liverpool, thousands of British soldiers appeared. They marched onto ships which they believed were bound for Europe. A few short hours later, at five minutes past five in the morning, in Dunleary Harbour, known then as Kingstown Harbour, they arrived. 
Some believed that they were in France. Others believed that the Germans had captured Dublin. They all knew, however, they were going to battle. By dawn on Wednesday morning, they were already marching towards the city. Thousands of marching feet thundering their way up through Dublin and into the city. Boots of war and destruction waking the people of Dublin as they passed. Two groups of young, raw soldiers, known as the Sherwood Foresters, made their way through the southeast entrance of the city. They were so new and so raw to the war effort that the first time some of them were shown how to reload a weapon was on the pier before they began marching. The Foresters' first experience of war was a strange one. As they marched into the city, the South Dublin locals, loyal to the Crown, applauded and cheered them on as they marched. The young boys were given cups of tea and sandwiches as they moved through the city. They eventually made their way up as far as Ballsbridge. As they marched with their bellies full and calm, Michael and Seamus had been lying in the cold, starved, ready and waiting. The soldiers moved towards Mount Street Bridge and Northumberland Road. With no fighting seen yet, they became slightly casual in their approach into the final bridge into the city. Michael, hungry and cold, was leaning against the wall of the bathroom of number 25 Northumberland Road, which looked onto Mount Street Bridge and talking to Seamus. As they pondered what their comrades were going through across the city and questioned was the rising already over, they were hushed by the gentle pressing of boots in the distance. A sound that grew and grew and then became a monstrous roar. Michael looked at the soldiers and then at the two young volunteers, no older than 16, who were with himself and Seamus. He turned to them and said, Go home. We know what we are dying for. Thank God the day has come. This was not the first time Michael had done this during the Rising. He had too much pride in the youth of Ireland and the boys he led to battle to have them killed. As the two young boys left the house, Seamus and Michael took up position at the window and with a small gap, they were pressed shoulder to shoulder together, ready. They waited. They waited until the full 1,750 troop was in their sights.
It is no lie to say they were scared. They trembled from head to foot in a panic of fear, and it was only the sense of survival that allowed them to do what came next. Crack. The first bullet volleyed out of Michael's rifle. Thud. First Forrester down. Crack. The second bullet flung from Seamus' rifle. Thud. Second Forrester down. Crack. Third bullet. Thud. Third Forrester. Foresters, panicking, began to retreat and take cover. Michael and Seamus continued to fire. They seldom wasted a bullet, and every time a trigger was pulled, a forester went down. The foresters tried to regroup, to discover where the firing was coming from, but every time they went to peek out to look, a bullet would meet their gaze. The firing was so accurate that the foresters believed there was at least 300 soldiers in the buildings around them. The positions that Michael and Seamus held allowed for more rebels to make their way down towards the bridge. When the foresters saw them, they believed it was they who were shooting at them and began to charge seven at a time over the bridge. Every time they charged, Michael and Seamus opened fire and took them down. The army, not willing to spare lives, kept charging. The two sons of Aaron and number 25, not willing to be the crown subjects, kept shooting. Within a matter of minutes, a pile of bodies formed on the bridge. The foresters, questioned their leadership in Dublin Castle as to what they should do next, the bridge was impassable. They were told to take the positions, no matter what, and to keep charging over. They do as they were told, and Michael and Seamus continued to pick them off. They continued this attempt until such time that the pile of dead and wounded was so high they could not cross the bridge anymore. What Michael and Seamus didn't realise as they shot, however, was those being sent over were simply being used as decoys. As they were killed following orders, their superior officers were watching for where the bullets were coming from. They traced this to the bathroom window the two men were firing from. At 6pm that evening, while it was still bright after a day being fired upon, the remaining foresters made an almighty charge all at once across the bridge. It was far too many for Michael and Seamus to handle and they couldn't push them back. They charged the window and threw a bomb into the room. Seamus, who was firing at the time, turned to Michael who was reloading and shouted, Michael, grenade. Michael looked back and saw the boots of Seamus who would scramble out the window to safety, 
He then saw the grenade and ran out the door of the room to get out, shouting, get the others out of here. He quickly hurried down the stairs to get out. As the grenade exploded behind him, he watched as the door to the house was kicked open. Facing him, the foresters. With a single bullet, Michael was shot and killed where he stood. Seamus did as he was told and got the other rebels out under Michael's orders and back to safety. At the end of the battle between Michael's men and the foresters, four rebels, including Michael, had died. Two hundred and thirty foresters had been killed or wounded. Michael died alone, having protected all the men under his control and ordering them to safety instead of death. He also protected those fighting in the south of the city from what would have been certain death if the foresters had made it through as one force. As Michael died, the rising entered the stages of failure. The leaders were taken and executed, and the crown placed its foot back in the neck of the harp. Today, we remember his artistic friends, Pierce, Connolly, Casement and the others. But so too is it important to remember those like Michael, who died breathing life into the Irish Rebellion. It is because of Michael and his comrades without titles that we do not just have the ability to say we are proud to be Irish, we also have the privilege to do so. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by myself, Oren. If you want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Irish, or leave us a review on your podcast app. Oren is anamdum. Slonanish.
It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speed. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.